The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussein. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit deeper dive into heel pain, specifically on that subset of patients who have both plantar fasciitis and nerve pain, uh, i.e. tarsal tunnel syndrome. So you can have both. And that subset of patients can can really be struggling with um, failure with the classic things that we do for plantar fasciitis, or orthotics and stretching and all that stuff. And and vice versa, if, if you're focused on the neuritic pain and they've got classic plantar fasciitis and you don't treat both, you're going to be, their patient's going to be dissatisfied and the surgeon's going to be uh, frustrated as well. So yeah, I think. Yeah, the heel is one of those areas where you have a lot of overlap on what it can be. Right. So when we're talking about, you know, bottom of the heel, you know, most commonly people associate heel pain with plantar fasciitis, right? But you can also get tarsal tunnel syndrome or your posterior tibial nerve uh, entrapment in those specific branches. If you're talking about heel pain in the back of the heel, sometimes you can just have a bruised heel or bursitis. If it's younger children, it could be Seavers disease. Um, you can also get Achilles enthesiopathy or Haglund's or Achilles tendonitis or stress fractures. There's a lot of overlap, but probably the most common things we see, plantar fasciitis and tarsal tunnel syndrome are probably the most common causes for plantar or uh, arch pain um, whenever we have patients come in. Um, so let's dive into both of those. So plantar fasciitis, we've done that quite a bit. Um, plantar fasciitis, there's a ligament that goes from the heel or a fascia band that goes from the heel to your toes. It gets overworked, it gets inflamed, you get micro tears, and now you're walking on a painful foot. The most common um, symptom is post-static dyskinesia or that first step pain. You know, patients relate you know, uh, first step out of bed, first step getting out of the car is super tender. It's like stepping on thumbtacks. And then they're also at risk for sequela where they start getting 
other things breaking down because of the way they're walking, right? You start seeing perineal tendonitis. So they're getting pain along the perineal tendons on the outside, uh, behind the fibula, on the side of the, the foot where the fifth metatarsal base is. It's that little bump in the, in the arch on the side, on the outside edge, uh, because of the way they're walking. They're trying to avoid stepping on the painful part, and then they start overusing other tendons. So you, you see other things start breaking down. When, when they come in, we'll do our full exam. The most common deforming forces is obviously the arch is collapsing and the tight Achilles. We've probably driven this into your head already. A tight Achilles is probably the one most common deforming force for so many foot problems. So as you can see, tight Achilles, it's pulling down if you're um, not able to get that heel to neutral and that foot up to 90. Uh, you start breaking down elsewhere, that collapse in that arch. Obviously, if your arch is collapsing, you're stretching that ligament on the bottom of your foot, that plantar fascia, hit, hit, nudge, nudge, and then they end up with the heel pain. So, tarsal tunnel <clears throat> syndrome. And you, and you can get tarsal tunnel syndrome from people who are simply showing signs of pronation. So, their arch is collapsing, yeah. and you're getting t- traction on the tibial nerve. Just that. based on that. Yeah, absolutely. So just like Dr. D said, the tarsal tunnel syndrome, you'll have that symptoms with a tingling, burning. Most commonly we associate with nerves, but you can also have that sharp pain, uh, usually in that arch or in that forefoot. But that first branch that comes off that nerve also goes to the heel, that uh, myocalcaneal heel um, nerve that uh, comes down right here and innervates that plantar fascia area. Yeah, sometimes called Baxter's nerve. Yeah, some Dr. Baxter decided to name it yeah. after himself. So essentially, you have to really parse this through with patients. Is their pain purely with weight-bearing and they don't have any symptoms of burning, tingling, shooting, probably just plantar fasciitis? If they have pain that gets worse during the day, not post-static dyskinesia, so they don't have pain when they wake up, but pain that gets worse during the day, it's kind of a, a dull, achy, kind of crampy pain. You push on their heel and there's you can't find a spot that hurts. Hurts even at nighttime in bed. Yeah, sometimes those folks are actually suffering from a nerve entrapment that's getting worse during the day because they've got varicose veins that are putting pressure on the nerve. So they're getting a tarsal tunnel syndrome based on the varicosities running with it in the tunnel. That's a really interesting one. And then the other would be folks that don't have pain until they're active. And some of those folks have the pronated foot structure, but they may also have a low-lying muscle belly that's running with the nerve all the way into the into the tarsal tunnel where it's not supposed to be muscle. It's just supposed to be tendon at that point. And so with activity, that muscle gets engorged and that starts putting pressure on the nerve and cutting off blood flow to the nerve. So yeah, I think you've got to really listen to the patient to, to determine what percentage of this is musculoskeletal versus neuritic. Is it completely one or the other, which is great because then you can just focus on that one thing. But if they're telling you two or three different things that point in both directions, you've got to be able to recognize that and realize that this patient probably has both. So conservatively, you know, we do all our normal things, stretching, bracing, orthotics. You know, people don't associate tarsal tunnel syndrome with orthotics, but I know Dr. D just said that that pronatory effect, that flexor retinaculum that comes over that area as your foot pronates tightens up. So that muscle is firing, that low-lung muscle belly, the abductor hallucis tendon here is also encroaching in on that pronatory effect. And a simple set of orthotics will hopefully reduce that and save them from having surgery. And then the other red flag would be if you put them in orthotics and they're like, 
Now my pain just got worse because the cup, heel cup may be pushing on the portapedis, irritating the nerve again. So you can go along your typical course for treating plantar fasciitis. And if you're paying attention, you're going to be able to pick out things the patient's telling you that are specifically pointing towards nerve-related pain. And if you continue to ignore it, you're going to have a really frustrated, um, you know, sometimes angry patient because you've been treating plantar fasciitis for six or eight months. And they really have a component of neuritic pain that they've been telling you all along, but you just, you haven't picked up on it. So, you know, as, as Larry Harkless used to say, you see what you know. Um, and until you can recognize it, you don't fully appreciate it. So we can do our steroid shots in the plantar fascia or the tarsal tunnel and or both. Um, the plantar fascia is more successful, I would say, with the steroid shots, the tarsal tunnel less so. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of sticking needles up into the tarsal tunnel and yeah. injecting things up there. So If it's a space-occupying lesion like varicose veins or scar tissue or even like schwannomas or leomas and things, then steroid shots not really going to help. If it's a foot structure problem, then obviously a good set of orthotics and things. And um, if, you know, all else fails, we're talking about going in surgically. Here's kind of what you see on the ultrasound for the tarsal tunnel. Uh, we look at, you know, the Tom, Dick, and Harry as it's coming down. I see, for me, I look for the artery. I see that pulsatile mass. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go just posterior to it. And that's your posterior tibial nerve. Will you go back, go back one slide? So I, I think this is important to see. Fascio, the difference between fasciosis and, and a relatively normal plantar fascia. When we do the ultrasound-guided injections, we're, we're measuring the thickness of the plantar fascia to try to determine if there's some information we can glean from that. If it's greater than six, yeah, I mean, I, my mine is like five, six, seven. When you start seeing plantar fascia that's you know seven, eight, nine millimeters thick, yeah, that's significant. And those folks are probably not going to respond to your typical non-surgical approaches. And the, you, you probably need to move forward with things like topaz microdebridement or um, using a combination of microdebridement with uh, amnio, uh, either patch or injections to try to push it in the direction of, of healing. So Dr. D is trying to point out the difference between fasciitis and fasciosis. So fasciitis means an acute inflammation. Fasciosis, you're getting scar tissue and fibrous tissue buildup in that area. It's degenerative. It's a degenerative problem. So it's really made that that conversion. So yeah, I think there is some evidence to support the fact that, you know, you can can kind of skip a lot of the non-surgical things when you've got a patient who's had this for years and they come in with this thickened, uh, scarred, degenerative process going on. And that that ultrasound is really unique. That top left box, you see the that you've got a kind of a white um, hyperechoic, hypoechoic, hyperechoic. The the hypoechoic would be the the black, right? Yeah. So you've got areas where there are different densities inside that tissue, and there shouldn't be. It should be one density. So you've really got something that that is angry and, and degenerative at that point, not necessarily inflamed. So yeah, and they've proven this with taking biopsies of this tissue. Oh, yeah. You're not going to find inflammatory cells in there very often once you get that far down the line. So we tried our conservative therapy, jump to surgery. So plantar fasciitis. I'm uh, an endoscopic plantar fascia uh, release type of person. Small incisions, board come across. I do my little hook test. If uh, my scraper, I see my plantar fascia fibers, and then I come across and clip it about two thirds of the way across. Um, you can also do it 
here's kind of a, a picture of what it looks like. Small institutions, two uh, little stitches on either side. So, so my only, my only consideration there is that you're not able to use the patches then. Yeah. So, if this is a, if this is a, a you know, a, a, a plantar fasciitis patient who's failed all conservative therapy, the likelihood is they're going to benefit from something that's going to push their tissue in the direction of healing. And that's why I like to open these up and, and do a small open version because I can then immediately suture in a, like a patch exactly like that. Yeah. So that, that's where I think you miss an opportunity by doing it endoscopically, yeah. but you know, you get good results, get good results. But, but I think I see enough of the, the failed ones from other folks that incision, that picture in the middle, the incision's a little Distorted. far. Yeah. Yeah. It's More a little far. Here. Uh, towards the heel, I, I actually put it. The one, the picture on your left looks better. The, the cartoon. Oh, you're in the middle. Yeah. yeah, the cartoon in the middle. That that incision's too far back. That yeah, that's right have, on the weight-bearing surface. Yeah, you're gonna hit the heel bone. You want to come right yeah. anterior to the <clears throat> weight-bearing surface. And so. and it's a small incision, but it allows me to directly visualize the ligament, poke holes in it. I don't usually release it. I just poke a bunch of holes in it with the topaz, exactly, and then. I like I don't like the percutaneous version again. Why? Because I can't put in the amnio I want to put in. So if I put in that cryopreserved umbilical cord into that wound, I'm going to see tremendous uh, soft tissue healing to the point where six weeks down the line you can't even find the incision, which is amazing. I've seen this over and over now. It's absolutely demonstrably different than than just suturing things closed in forty or fifty year old, sixty year old patients, and then. Applying that cryopreserved tissue, you're getting stem cells, which can help restore the the ligament, um, and provide tremendous anti-inflammatory and anti-scarring uh, capacity that you can't get by just doing this percutaneously. So I think that this procedure really needs to be married with regenerative medicine, and and that would be either injection of reconstituted dehydrated amnio, which isn't I don't think is as good as the cryopreserved. Because the you still have live cells, you don't have stem cells in the in the dehydrated stuff. It's not really a stem cellular product, but the cryopreserved product is. So, yeah. all right. So tarsal tunnel. We're gonna dive into that portion. So we talked about you know the anatomy. Posterior tibial uh, nerve comes down, branches into the different branches. Your uh, flexor retinaculum. Here they're not showing the abductor tendon, but right. I think I got a picture <coughs> here. Or the oh. abductor muscle. Yeah. There we go. Here's the abductor. <coughs> it comes through here. That's the where the portopedis comes through, where the nerves are diving. That's through. a great picture because I think that's really where most of the trouble is. Yeah, people do the flexor retinaculum, but they miss the portopedis. Yeah. You're still having heel pain. You're still having foot pain. You have the potential for it. Yeah, you could be missing an opportunity to decompress those branches as they go into the arch of the foot. So what we'll do is we'll come through, we'll release that flexor retinaculum, we'll release the septums between here, mm -hmm. and then I I don't know about you, but I come around and circumferentially will uh, take the fascia off the abductor if I can. Not a problem. Yeah, I, I do that more times than not. Yeah, It's simple. It's effective. We're taking mm -hmm. the stress off of the nerve now, and hopefully you know, it's healing up. This is kind of what it looks like when we're in there. It's unlikely that nerve is going to be compressed purely by muscle surrounding it. Yeah. So I think freeing up, the it's the fascial tissue that can become fibrotic, thickened. Uh, as we age, it gets, it gets uh, stiffer. So yeah, I think that... 
you know, that's a, a pretty easy, um, pretty easy thing to do. You know, sometimes you'll have like students or scrub techs or nursing students in there and they'll be like, oh, that's just it's so thin. It's like it's like saran wrap. But if you take saran wrap and you tie it around something, you bunch it up, you can lift up like textbooks, you can lift up people. I mean, I'll, I'll put my finger underneath it and be able to pick up the entire leg. Oh, yeah. You know, and you, you can see that this this tissue surrounding the nerve at the portapedis can be extraordinarily thick and fibrous and, and very tight. So, yeah, releasing all that, you'll, you'll see blood vessels open up in the nerve. You'll yeah. see other indications. And then also we're using the nerve integrity monitor, at least I am, uh, with uh, with these. There you go. Man. I, I got to say, the ball, bro. <laughs> Dr. D put me on to these, uh, the, yeah. the NIMS units. Uh, I'll, I've honestly, in the years of doing this, and the other docs, obviously, we're learning when we're in residency, we're learning from other um, specialists who've been in the field for like 20 plus years, and no one has talked about NIMS units um, ever. Yeah, it's, it's a... I think it's a fantastic tool, much like using x-ray when you're doing a bunion surgery or any sort of bone work. You wouldn't consider doing a bunion surgery without taking x-rays throughout the case. I don't consider doing peripheral nerve work on motor nerves without doing this. If you're just operating on a sensory nerve, this is clearly not going to help you because it requires stimulus within the muscles that that nerve um, innervates. But this is a way for us to measure, to do an, a, an electromyogram, an EMG, during the surgery, throughout throughout the case, uh, zap the nerve with small amounts of electricity and measure that response in the in the muscle bellies. In this case, the abductor hallucis and the abductor digiti minimi. So we're measuring the medial plantar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve. There's a green branch that comes off to the side here. Oh, no, not the green one. What's the... Uh, the, the green and uh, white are the ground and the stimulus return. And those... Those go up into the leg. Yeah, there's one that's on the side of the foot here. I forgot what color it is. Yeah, it's, well, see, to, traditionally now, red and blue are for the proximal leg. It's actually orange goes into the abductor lucis, and then purple goes into abductor digi minimi. But this is a really old picture. This is from when we first started doing this. So we've been doing, using the NIM unit for about, I want to say at least 10 years. Yeah, the and nice thing about when you do this is when you free it up versus before when you test it, that that multiplies. It's like stepping on a hose, right? I'm trying to see how much water's coming out one side if I have my foot on it, mm -hmm. and then I free it up, no more pressure on that hose. Bam, it's flying like crazy. So, so what, what, what Dr. Hussein's trying to explain is that literally this is the only way that you're going to be able to appreciate during the surgery that what you're doing to the nerve has been helpful for the conduction of the nerve. We can see pre-decompression values, a baseline value, and compare that to post-decompression or after the decompression immediately in the OR within five minutes. <clears throat> you can see a doubling or tripling of the conduction of the nerve. It's quantifiable. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. And you don't always see that. Like I, we had a case a couple weeks ago where I'm zapping the nerve, zapping the nerve, you know, upping the impulse until I've maxed out the impulse and there's no muscle activity for the abductor minimi and the abductor hallucis in the foot. And this is in a diabetic patient who's had diabetes for 20 plus years. This is telling me that this is an extremely diseased nerve. I still think the patient's going to benefit from the surgery, but sensory restoration in that case, they're probably not going to get as much sensory restoration as we would have expected had we gotten to it sooner. So it's a good way of determining when you've completed the surgery. If I can see that I've 
quadrupled their conduction during the surgery, that's kind of an endpoint for me. And then I know, okay, I've done enough. I've decompressed the nerve enough. Other than, otherwise, you're just guessing. And and I think that's a crummy way to do nerve surgery. So I mean, that happens with longstanding nerve problems. You know, the nerves being aggravated, pinched off for so long, you're literally <clears throat> strangulating that nerve. In that particular case, when we were doing the portopedis dissection, you could beefy red muscle that should be in the portopedis was translucent because it was completely atrophied. And so we knew, you know, this this particular gentleman was was going to have to be really realistic about his expectations because we may have gotten to it too late. So the last thing I know me and Dr. D both love to do is after we've released that nerve, we put a protective layer on top of it to protect it so our surgical site doesn't cause damage or scar tissue formation. And plus, it allows that nerve to get all the growth factors it needs to hopefully heal up. So a little nerve wrap, a little burrito or taco, that nerve, tag it in the corners and Presto Changeo, that nerve is hopefully a lot better off now since uh, you know, we freed it up and now we're giving it what it needs to, to heal up. So essentially, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this particular um, show was to highlight the potential for patients to have both plantar fascial pain and peripheral nerve pain, i.e. tarsal tunnel syndrome at the same time. This is a subset that is more common than not it's, it's incumbent on us to be able to tease that out from the patient um, and that there is a potential surgical option for these folks if they fail the conservative stuff where we can address both at the same time. And in my hands, that's using cryopreserved umbilical cord to wrap the, the tibial nerve and then using the same material to layer over the repair site at the plantar fascia. So we're attacking the the chronic plantar fasciitis that's not responding, and we're attacking the uh, chronic nerve compression and providing the nerve what it needs to be able to heal, in addition to uh, simply using a dehydrated uh, umbilical cord. I use the cryopreserved version because there are live stem cells. It's thicker, so you're getting a little bit more cushioning. It's extraordinarily anti-inflammatory, anti-scarring, and even uh, there's an antibiotic component to it. And, and again, you see the overlying incision in these cases where we use the cryopreserved version look dramatically different at six weeks than we typically see. So the, it's it's accelerating the remodeling phase, I believe. And you're getting more of that fetal healing. Um, the, the component within this particular product that they believe is responsible for fetal healing is not the stem cells. It's actually a heavy chain hyaluronic acid molecule that they believe is responsible for um, fetal healing, which is that scarless healing that we're all looking for. Uh, and that has a tremendous ability to protect the nerve from uh, getting encased in scar tissue during the, the remodeling phase. So, yeah, I think that's really important to remember that you can have both, that we do have surgical procedures that can address both at the same time. And, and I think that's one really unique use for the cryopreserved umbilical cord. So as far as recovery goes, we're looking at being in a surgical shoe or boot, um, simple stitching, rest, ice, and elevate as much as possible. And I avoid the boots like the plague if I'm including the tarsal tunnel. Oh, yeah. You want the nerves to be moving. I, the post-op shoe is okay, but yeah, I don't, I don't use boots for these folks because I think immobilization is the wrong thing to do when, when you've opened up the tarsal tunnel. You give them the nerve flossing exercises? Uh, we, we do. We also get them directly into... PT for that, 
um, where they're getting some professional um, PT nerve gliding, nerve flossing at two weeks. So they're, the staples are coming out at two weeks, stitches or staples, and then we're getting them right into PT. You know, that I think makes a huge difference as well. So I mean, it's a comprehensive approach. The whole idea is we're trying to get everything to heal up without uh, entrapping or encasing the tibial nerve and scar again. And that plantar incision, it it's done in such a way that patients can weight bear on that after about three days. So we keep them off of it for about three days. I think we've we've hit the nail on the head with uh, the nerve, not necessarily nerve versus plantar fascia, uh, neuritis versus plantar fascial pain, but but those folks that are a subset combination that really have both. And and again, it's incumbent on. Um, us as uh, clinicians to be able to tease out who's really complaining of both and not uh, miss that because you will certainly have a, a frustrated patient down the line if you haven't been able to, to identify that because you're going to be missing why they are, they are not getting better. So terrific. Well, excellent uh, set of slides there. I hope that's helpful for everybody both clinicians that, that we have, our residents that, that we have following us and subscribing to the YouTube channel and, and then hopefully for patients as well. So this will be one that we can point patients to to help them understand what we mean by both tarsal tunnel syndrome and plantar fasciitis. And again, please like and subscribe. And uh, we love it when we get comments from folks that want to hear um, information about other subjects or, or go deeper into other subjects. So please... Send us your concerns and and anything that we can dive deeper into. Absolutely. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys next time on The Pod Doctors. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.